Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Wallace J. Nichols, whose ocean-related CV and list of awards goes on and on. But I think the best way to characterize him is to read how he's been described by others. A keeper of the ocean, a visionary, a water warrior, the godfather of water. And he is the author of the book, Blue Mind, which has transformed the way many think of the relationship we humans have with the ocean and really all water. Jay, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me. And before we go into your work, which I think is so fascinating, I want you to tell me where your initial connection to the ocean came from. Well, I, th- I think like a lot of people as a kid, I just love the water. Any chance I got to be at the ocean or in a lake, any body of water, a, a rinky-dink little swimming pool, a kiddie pool, at any point, I was just pulled to it and in it. So. As far back as I can remember, I think it was like that. So east coast of the United States, I guess, would be the the Atlantic Ocean. And then it just grew from there. Yeah. A lot of people have this connection with the ocean, but you actually turned it into a career. So talk to me about that moment. Yeah. Well, you know, as a kid, I felt better in the water. On land, I stuttered. I was shy, introverted, as they say now. I preferred not to talk to people because of the stuttering. But in the water, nobody ever talks to you (laughs) underwater. It's quiet and you don't have to answer questions. And I just felt, I felt more at home there at peace and um, turned that emotional connection into a career that kept me by the water, which is called a marine biologist, uh, sort of inherent in the name. And that's probably why, one of the reasons I became a marine biologist, because it felt good and did that for you know, a long time. And then started to notice that being by the water made a lot of other people feel pretty good too. And so as a scientist, became more curious about the science behind that. And um, I've spent the last 10 years digging into that. Yeah. And I cannot wait to talk to you about the neuroscience of this, which is what your book is all about and is so fascinating. But if we take a step before that, how did you turn the feeling of how you felt in the water and how much you loved it to actually caring about conserving the ocean and what's under the sea. Yeah, well, I I love being in the water. I loved when there were other creatures in the water, like turtles. Mm. And when I started learning that said turtles were in trouble, I became concerned. So I developed a empathy and compassion for my fellow water lovers, both human and turtle alike. And then, you know, you realize, oh, wow, turtles live in this water. What if the water has oil pollution in it? What if it has plastic pollution in it? What if it's dangerous? How can I contribute to fixing those problems? So sea turtles were kind of my portal into climate change, plastic pollution, coastal development, oil spills, overfishing, bycatch, you name it. All of the big ocean issues, I've been involved in all of them but through the, the portal 
of the sea turtle uh, question there. Unfortunately, they get they get clobbered by pretty much everything. And to save sea turtles, you need to save an ocean. So that's kind of gotten me involved in all kinds of issues. Well, what you've done with it is so neat around connecting our feeling of the ocean to neuroscience so that we can understand what actually happens to us, why we care about the ocean, which then has ripple effects to conserving the ocean. Yeah, So let's true. dive right into Blue Mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you hinted at it there. You know, some people might say, well, we, we don't need to know the why. We just need to move to the action part. I just completely disagree. I think the more we understand why, the better we can focus our actions. And so here's an example. If I take a, a book and hold it in my hand and I ask you, what's going to happen when I let go of this book? You know exactly what's going to happen, right? It's going to fall. And you know which direction right. it will fall. It will fall down. And you know that because of your experience. If I said, do you need an equation to answer that question? Do you need science to answer that question? You say, no, I, I don't need to know the science. I just know. But the fact is we do have Newtonian physics. You took it in high school. You may have taken, you may have majored in it in college. It's how we build cars and planes and roads. We need the science of physics to understand gravity, even though we understand gravity intuitively. Well, I was going to say, we kind of, at this point for kids, we, we need it, but you don't need to teach it anymore because it just becomes a part of like the sky's blue, the ocean's blue, yeah. whatever it is, right? It just yeah. is part of what we take as fact. It is common knowledge, but in order to be an engineer, you still need Newtonian physics. In order to do things, complicated things, you still need the science. And similarly, you could say, well, why do we need to understand our emotional connection to the ocean, to water? We just know it's there. And I would, mm -hmm. I would argue the better we understand the science, the better we can do all the things we want to do. Save mm -hmm. the ocean, save ourselves. So if we just lean back and rest on our intuition, uh, that's not enough, I don't think. So that's my argument for Blue Mind Science. If you're in fact arguing against it, <laughs> which you're not, so no, it's 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 funny. I was <laughs> I realize now it sounds like I was arguing <laughs> against it, but you you make the exact point, which is opposite, but which I believe in, which is that we kind of all intuitively know that we love the ocean. Talk to anyone who's spent time at the beach, gotten to swim in the ocean or a river anywhere, you love it. But I do agree with you, understanding why we love it then inspires us to go the next step of understanding how important it is and why we should think about being able to maintain a world where we can do these things. Yeah. And, and what if all of our kids learned in school about their blue mind? What, what might happen? Mm -hmm. Well, they would be mentally healthier, cognitively stronger emotionally more well. Their chances of being burnt out like they are might go down. They could become more creative and more compassionate and more empathetic and more knowledgeable about themselves. And they may even turn out to care more about the lakes, the rivers, and the oceans that give them these amazing feelings. But we don't teach it in school. We teach the water cycle, but we don't teach the new water cycle, which would involve Blue Mind. Let's teach it here. Yeah. What is the Blue Mind? <laughs> so, well, Blue Mind is 
a phrase simply that refers to this set of emotional benefits. And it's a huge bucket of emotional benefits that we get when we're near, in, on, or underwater. What most people are familiar with is that, that mildly meditative state that you get. Surfers call it stoke. If you're not a surfer, you might have a different word for it. Divers experience it. Swimmers of all kinds. I swim almost every day, and my fellow swimmers all agree. They feel better during and after their swim than they did before. Walking on the beach, listening to water, uh, even recordings of water or artworks about water, stories about water, uh, your bathtub, your shower. Uh, it's not just an ocean conversation. It's lakes and rivers and waterfalls and ponds and creeks. And humanity has known this. Blue Mind appears in every single sacred text, in every spiritual and cultural tradition in human history. But we, we've left it out of our, our teaching, our current teaching. And probably most concerning is we've left it out of our conservation work. We've left it out of our ocean talking points. We focus mostly on the economic and the ecological benefits, which are important and worth focusing on, but we leave out the emotional wellness benefits. And when we do that, we undervalue our oceans. And when we undervalue our oceans or each other, bad stuff happens every single time throughout history. And so Blue Mind is an effort to share the science and practice around this idea in order to fix the broken value equation, which is in fact broken. You can, you know, it's, it's really clear. We've got, we've got some problems with our, our, our water planet in the hopes that that will create a regenerative economy that will start to fix what's broken, not just on the planet, but in, in ourselves. And, um, that's that's it, <laughs> kind of in a nutshell. I think you do a nice job of explaining Blue Mind by comparing it to Red Mind and Gray Mind. Yeah, every, everybody can relate to Red Mind these days. And since the pandemic, Gray Mind as well. So Red Mind is our new normal. Uh, we wake up, many people, the first thing they do before coffee or before getting out of bed is they look at their smartphone and they start being agitated. And the velocity of the world is much higher than it was when we were kids. Uh, everything, mm -hmm. every single thing, not just the cars and trains and planes, but the, the flow of information. We're processing so much more in an hour or a day than we did a, a generation ago. Um, we have screens everywhere. We have to-do lists. And I don't know anybody who feels like they're ahead of the curve. <laughs> Um, we're all feeling like we're slightly or extremely behind. And if you pay attention to the news, you get lots of more reasons to feel stress. Throw on top of that, you know, the environmental crisis, climate crisis, all of the associated environmental issues um, that can make you feel afraid and guilty and bad in general. And so if you stay in that red mind mode, you will in fact burn out, guaranteed. There's no way to escape that. And we're seeing record rates of burnout in journalists, yeah. teachers, first responders, doctors, nurses, police, firefighters, and then just your average hardworking person. And our young people, our young people, the most resilient age group, they're burning out because they're just constantly stimulated. 
they don't know where their off switch is. And, and so in that mode, when we, when we start to feel like we're sagging a little bit, we just caffeinate <laughs> and think that that's going to, that's going to fix it. If we just rev even, even hotter. So that's red mind and gray mind and red mind is incredibly important. Uh, it's, it's part of our, the way we're built. We thrive and strive and compete and we try to get things done and meet deadlines. Um, but if it's all you have, uh, it will kill you or will make you fall apart. And what is gray mind? If red is the mode of stress. Yeah. Red mind is, is the burn and gray mind is the ashes is the burnout. Mm. It's, um, when we, we become despondent or mildly depressed, when we begin to languish. And a lot of people can relate to that these days. And, and a lot of people are trying to figure out solutions to burnout. What is happening, what we're seeing is people are quitting. They're quitting their teaching jobs. They're quitting their journalism jobs. They're quitting their first responder jobs. Nurses are quitting. Uh, and these are skilled people with decades of experience they're opting out and even without another plan. And so it is a bit of a crisis and it's extremely complex. I'm, I'm not saying that Blue Mind is the answer to uh, all of our burnout, but it's one really great tool for our toolkit. And nature in all of its forms is based on water. All of it, 100% of the natural world is based on water, of the living world. And if when we understand that is the best source of health and wellness, maybe that'll help avoid burnout. What happens to our brain? Explain the blue mind to us when we're in water. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep to the ocean here because that's what we're focused on at New Atlantis and at this podcast. But when I'm in the ocean, what actually happens? Yeah, the best way to sort of study it is to pull it all apart into its components. So all of the senses, basically. Now, before we do that, I will say that's not the way we experience it. We experience it, all of our senses, all at the same time. But uh, to study it, we like to pull it apart. So visually, when you step up to the water, your world is simplified, right? It's not just a blue screen or a, a blue wall, but it is much more simple than the screen I'm looking at right now, which has your face and my face and many words and all kinds of other clutter. So visually our world gets simpler that gives us some bandwidth back auditorily the same thing happens there are no voices or honking horns or sirens coming from the ocean there's still sound it's the waves the sound of the waves or maybe a distant bird and that's simplified so that gives us some bandwidth back so we're not processing visual and auditory information as we are all day every day so there's no language being processed. Mm -hmm. There's no printed word being processed or imagery. Interesting thing is that it isn't just white noise and a blue screen. There is some motion and there's some movement of light and waves and there's some sound, but it isn't requiring us to process it. So we get a, we get a rest. Our mind gets a rest, but we don't get bored. So I, I talk to people and they... Mm -hmm. They say, I can sit and listen to and look at the ocean all day for a week, and I don't get bored. So the scientists, psychologists call this soft fascination. So the ocean holds us in this place that is fascinating, but does not require effortful work. 
So auditorily, visually, and then when we get our bodies into the water, somatically, we don't have to coordinate 200 muscles in response to gravity. So we get to rest our muscles. And so even sitting here right now, I'm, I'm, I'm quite relaxed. I'm enjoying this conversation. It's pretty chill. But my brain is processing what I'm saying, what I think I'm going to say, what you're asking me. It's processing what I'm seeing, not just on the screen, but all around me. And my brain is holding me in this position, upright in a chair. So I'm coordinating about 200 muscles. Even though I'm, I would say this is relaxing, this is restful, my brain's pretty active. But when you slip into the water and get to relax in this blue mind state, you get all this bandwidth back. Now, your brain doesn't just turn off and go to sleep. It switches into another mode that I refer to as blue mind that is very different than red mind or gray mind. And in that mode, we are more creative. Turns out we are more compassionate. We're more connected to each other. We're more connected to our planet. Uh, we're more relaxed. We're much more prone to uh, have solutionary ideas for complex problems or creative insights. We're much more prone to collaborate. And there's a ton of research that shows that uh, the experience of awe and wonder, the ocean being the greatest source of awe and wonder planet Earth has to offer, switches us into a more pro-social state whereby we're more open to empathy and compassion and working together. Well, that's good. In red mind, we're in fight or flight. That is not pro-social and that is not collaborative, nor is it very creative. So if we think we're going to communicate red mind to people and get a response that is creative, collaborative, compassionate, and leading to the solutions we want and need around the ocean crisis, we're going to be waiting a long time. So this entire sensory experience of Blue Mind sets us up to be problem solvers, to be collaborative, creative problem solvers. It's kind of why you see, it's almost cliche, right? You see in movies, like I can't remember the, which James Bond movie, but let's just say like for in the world of James Bond, the shit was hitting the fan. Like his world was blowing up and he went to the river, a river in Scotland to figure out what in the hell am I going to do to save my world? Over and over, Hollywood depicts those sort of problem-solving modes. People go to the water. They hold each other in the water. There's a Academy Awards for all of the movies that have used water as a protagonist and as a, a problem-solving protagonist, both you know, in emotional crisis and physical crisis. So we know this, but as environmental communicators, we tend to kind of go for the red mind mode. We keep punching the red mind button, thinking we're going to get a different result. And we don't. We're just making people more burnt out. We're scaring them. We're making them feel guilty. We're overwhelming them with facts and information. And we're not getting the result where we think we should get. But if you look at the psychology, it, it makes sense. People are burnt out. And scaring them on top of their burnout ain't going to work. So. Blue Mind is, is not just good for each of us in terms of our personal wellness. It's good for all of us in terms of our collective wellness and our ability to solve problems. That was a long, I love long rant there. <laughs> no, I, I, I want you to keep going. That was a fantastic <laughs> answer. You, one of the things you say about yourself is that you like to make up words. And one word that I 
saw on your website is neuroconservation. Yeah. That, Explain that to us. That's where neuropsychology meets conservation biology. And most people who work on conservation will recognize that we're not in the turtle behavior business. We're not trying to change the behavior of sea turtles or the behavior of plankton or the behavior of whales or the behavior of coral polyps. We're trying to change human behavior. And then everybody agrees, conservation is behavior change. But then you say, well, what do you understand about behavioral science? And usually the answer is, well, very little. Well, who on your board (laughs) is a behavioral scientist? Well, nobody. Um, I'll ask you that. Who on your board is a behavioral scientist? Who on your staff is a behavioral scientist? If we're, we are in the behavior change business, uh, 100%, that's what we do. So neuroconservation is a field and um, an endeavor that says, hey, let's talk to neuropsychologists about behavior and apply it to conservation. You could call it conservation psychology. There's lots of different terms you could use, but neuroconservation is, is how I refer to it. Jay, how do you connect the benefits that I personally feel from, again, being in the ocean with the desire to treat the ocean well? Because no matter what's going on in the ocean right now, unless it's something really terrible, an oil spill or what have you, or or terrible trash, a lot of bad things can be happening while I'm still personally enjoying the ocean. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think it's a, it's a process and it begins with a conversation. So A, talk about it. Uh, we haven't done that very much. We've kind of walled off a lot of the feelings from the work. I think that's not really necessarily helpful. And then teach about it. We don't teach our kids. Our K through 12 education system doesn't at all teach kids that if you're having a bad day, water can help. If you're creatively stuck, water can help. Um, so when we start teaching it and it becomes common knowledge, I think the policy will follow. The behavior will follow. So my, my approach is to create common knowledge and common practice. And by that, I mean everyone should understand their blue mind, have access to it, and practice it in some, some form. And I think when that happens, it will be the cognitive disconnect, which you're referring to, that gap. There's a gap between you know, what you, how you feel and what you think you should do and what you actually do. That will hopefully begin to shrink. There's a, obviously a policy component that can help nudge us towards the behavior that is sustainable. And hopefully the you know, policymakers will, will begin to recognize that. We've got a lot of policy that recognizes the need to protect our waters and our oceans. None of it mentions the cognitive, emotional, psychological, social, and spiritual benefits, which are vast and valuable. Um, None of it mentions that. So there's a nice lever. If we update our policy to reflect the science, that could help too. And so, yeah, lots of answers to that, that simple question. And lots of work. Do you think it's because people take it for granted? Right? I mean, you think about the old days, so people were prescribed to go take the waters, right? Or is that why we're not mentioning it? Well, not that long ago, the idea of eating real food was just sort of a far out California idea. And exercise being good for your health was a far out idea and reducing stress. So 
you know, when, when I was a kid, doctors weren't saying, eat good food, reduce your stress and exercise. But those were considered eyeball roll ideas. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when the science started to say exercise is good for your physical and mental health. And people were like, huh, wow, interesting. Is it really? All right, now it's common knowledge that reducing stress, eating real food, uh, and exercising helps you be mentally and physically and even socially better. So I, th- I think- uh, By the way, you're speaking to, to someone who grew up on feet. Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not meant to be bad news. That's good news. You know, that we can, we can create these changes. They take a little time, but wow, you know, it used to be, you know, exercise was not really connected to emotional and physical health and wellness. So that, that's positive. You know, we, we can add in blue mind and make it go common knowledge or mainstream. And I think we'll see a lot of benefits. Yeah. So connect the dots for me which seems obvious, but I want you to do it between Blue Mine and a marine protected area. Yeah. So let's just start with marine protected areas are important. They protect resources that we want to have around for a long time. So a marine protected area is like a, is a blue park, right? It's like in, an aquatic park. If you're trying to get a marine protected area uh, created and funded and you need resources to manage it and enforce it, you want to describe your marine protected area's benefits as accurately and completely as possible, right? True statement. So if you are not describing the cognitive, emotional, psychological, social, spiritual, and physical wellness benefits to society of your marine protected area, you're undervaluing your marine protected area you're underselling it. You're probably underfunded and you're going to struggle to protect that marine protected area. Most people are not as motivated by biodiversity as I am. Maybe you are, and maybe all of your listeners. They might not even be able to define biodiversity, but they do understand that, say here here in Monterey Bay, a huge marine protected area, we have first responders and veterans who do surf therapy here. That's one of the benefits of our marine protected area, not being trashed by oil rigs. Um, we have people who do dive therapy. During the pandemic, I, I would talk to people who said the only way I got through it, and by got through it, they mean the only way I'm still alive is that water. And they're not exaggerating and it's not hyperbole. So that's part of our story for this marine protected area is that our at-risk youth, our first responders, the people who have served our country and are just average burnt out residents are better off. They're healthier. They're more creative. They get to do their jobs. They get to be alive in part because this marine protected area uh, helps them. That's a hell of a good selling point, I think. If you want to get public support and financial support for your marine protected area. Now, if you prefer just to leave it out, which is what most marine protected areas do, I don't think you should. But if you want to bring it in, I'm happy to have that conversation. 
with anyone. Now, you may say, well, our marine protected area is out really, really far and really, really deep. Well, that's a little more challenging, but you are sharing the images and the videos and the photographs and the stories. And those images and videos and photographs do put people into a blue mind state. One of the forms of water that creates blue mind is virtual. And by virtual, I mean sound recordings and videos, photography, art, poetry, prose, all of that is virtual water. And it very, very much puts you into a blue mind state. You know, the most, most popular sleep apps uh, use water sounds to help you rest and calm your mind. So there's um, no reason to leave blue mind out of your MPA plan and um, certainly not out of your marketing and fundraising. So two questions about that. Do you find that the anecdotal stories about how it benefits people are enough or do people have to put another kind of value on this, some kind of statistic or monetary value attached to it? I'd say do it all. All of the information. Use your most powerful stories. Marine protected area here, there's a young man named Bobby Lane who showed up. He was a uh, Marine veteran from Texas, showed up for surf therapy. His plan was to learn to surf and then leave this planet. That was his plan. Once he got up on his board, his third wave, he said, I want to live. And I want to teach people how to do this. And then, then what he said, he said, I am a trained warrior. Now I am an ocean warrior. I'm a badass motherfucker. So you're glad to have me on. You can bleep that if you need to. But you're, you're glad, to have me on, <laughs> glad to have me on your team now, straight up. So there's a great anecdote. And how many Bobby Lanes are there? Thousands every year that come here and are transformed. What is the benefit of that? You say, well, we can't quantify it. Sure you can. Do we, we quantify healthcare every day. We quantify mm -hmm. it up and down, left and right, in and out. Um, we put price tags on health, of course. Mental health too. It's not some fuzzy concept. We pay for mental health. We pay for therapy. How much does therapy cost? How much ocean therapy are we given for free? So if you put price tags on it, great. Uh, you want statistics, I'll give you a boatload of statistics. And you want anecdotes? Here are the best anecdotes your MPA has. They're right, right here. And they're blue mind stories. So yeah, do it all. And bring in a grad student to do a study, maybe a master's student, to do a study of the blue mind benefits of your marine protected area. And they'll get their thesis out of it. And they'll, they'll get their degree. And they'll get a a publication in a peer-reviewed journal, and you'll get an amazing new story for your MPA with data to back it up. And you started to address this by talking about photographs and videos, but how do we bring... I live here in Southern California. We go to the beach every weekend. My kids surf. I spend more time than you can ever imagine sitting <laughs> on the ocean watching them surf. So it is very clear to me, my connection and the blue mine. But if you don't live near a body of water, sure, you have your bathtub and you can get into this blue mind experience, et cetera. But since we're talking about the link to conservation, how do you get there? How, how do we use this blue mind concept to get someone who lives nowhere near water to understand the great value of helping our oceans? Well, the only people I know who live nowhere near water are in space. 
So mm. if that's the target audience, let's talk about astronauts. But I think you're referring to people in Arizona, maybe Oklahoma, Iowa, maybe places aren't not near the ocean. But if you look at the map, they are near water. The Salt River runs right through Phoenix. Tempe Town Lake is right in the heart of that city. And it's in the Sonoran Desert. Some of the best blue mine stories I've ever heard have come from the Midwest, have come from places like Kansas and Oklahoma. But so to your, your point, there's wild water, lakes, rivers, oceans, waterfalls, rain, creeks, clouds, fog, that's all wild water, ice and snow, wild water. But then there's urban water, and that is fountains and urban waterfronts, and all the great cities have some urban water. Um, there's domestic water, pools, tubs, showers, any, any kind of domesticated water, which in fact is wild water that is temporarily encapsulated or put in a tube, and then eventually goes back to being wild water. So you get to luxuriate in it for a moment while it's domesticated. There's, I'm going to date myself with the <laughs> reference of Calgon, take me yes. away. Yeah. And I quote, I actually quote that in my book. And some, some people read and go like, Calgon, what's that? Yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> pretty good advertising campaign, if not slightly sexist. But um, the... Uh, it was a different time. That's it was a sure. different time. Um, but connect the blue mind with conservation it needs to be more than a bathtub, even though you can still get into the blue mind in your bathtub yeah. or, or taking a shower. You need to connect to this this wild water matters. <laughs> yeah, and everywhere, I haven't met anybody who didn't have an answer to that question. But I always ask people, any group I speak to, what's your water? And then I listen, and everybody has an mm -hmm. answer. That's where we start. It may not be the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, but it could be a pond, a creek, a lake with a name. And it is their water. They love it. And it's their go-to. And then we start there. And I think one of the problems with that ocean conservation has, it, it has failed to recognize that the oceans are connected to all of the lakes, the rivers, and creeks of the world. And we silo it out. We have our conferences. They have their conferences and the two never meet. That's bad. That's like bad for our mission because all these people who don't see the ocean every day or maybe once a year or maybe never, they are connected. What happens in their river affects the ocean. And so we silo things out and we don't really get these conversations about, about the blue space, about blue mind. So that's why I'm pretty ecumenical about water. I meet people where they live literally and figuratively. And I talk to them about their water and that's the starting point. And it works really well because they care about what they care about and they care about their water. If I start spouting off about the Pacific Ocean and they've never seen it, it's very abstract. But if we start mm -hmm. talking about the lake or the river that they adore and they have their best memories from that place, and then I say, well, yeah, my version of that is, is this body of water. Now we have a beginning of a conversation. Turns out they would do anything to protect that water. Anything. Right. They would fight tooth and nail to protect that water because it is so important to them. And so that's a good place to start. I also find it fascinating that you can get these blue mind benefits from 
videos and photographs, like you were saying before. So Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin, these National Geographic photographers who have done beautiful storytelling through their videos and photographs have had real effects on people. And I know just looking at their photos, it does change you for a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it works so much better if, when you see a photograph of, uh, let's just say a, a water scene, it works so much better if you've actually experienced the water yourself. Your emotional connection to that photograph is even stronger if you know what it feels like to be underwater or in the water or just having the wind blow in your face at the edge of the water uh, or to be in white water or have any of those experiences. You see that image and it, it affects you more than, wow, that's interesting. I've, I've never been in a place like that. Then it's a little more distant, a little more abstract. But it turns out I, I love their pho photography. I love all the, the conservation photographers of the world. But the most powerful photographs are the ones you took and mm. uh, yourself. And you put them on as your screensaver. You put them in your slideshow. You put them on your wall. Uh, same with video, same with audio. So they could be grainy. They could be not so professional. But the images that you take of the moment that you love in the place that you care about, those are the most valuable forms of virtual water, in my opinion. We have an abundant, I mean, it's amazing. Look on Instagram, we have no shortage of beautiful water photos and beautiful wildlife photos. There's just gazillions. I can't even see them all. But the ones that work best are the ones that we take and that we show our friends and say, hey, this, I took this photo. It's a little grainy. You have to kind of squint to see the whale tail. But I was there and it was awesome and it changed my life. Those are the most powerful photos. Jay, I have to imagine that the study of neuroscience in this area is just making leaps and bounds every year. That You wrote your book a while ago and I suspect you've learned a lot since then. Do you expect we'll learn a lot more? Yeah, there's, so there's 10 years more research uh, on top of what I wrote about in my book. All of it says, yes, and you're right, do more. The research isn't going to stop. I suspect it will mostly continue to say that nature is good for our emotional health. And so I think our pivot is to practice and action and concrete steps. The challenge is society is pulling us more into the virtual realm, um, more screen time more sedentary lifestyles. And so, you know, we, ne we need to really be aware how this technology does improve our lives. It is fantastic. It allows us to talk to each other right now and share these ideas. And when you're done, log off, use the off button a lot and step away from the screens and get in the water. I think as that trend continues, Privacy is in the decline. Solitude is in, in the decline. But the ocean still remains the greatest source of privacy, solitude, awe, wonder, romance, peace, freedom, creativity, calmness, connectivity, all of those things. The ocean is the greatest source of that. And your smartphone doesn't like to be underwater very much. So leave it at home and go get wet. <laughs> I think that is a perfect place to end this. It's great. I love that you've done this research because as you talked about before, 
the more we understand it, the more we will protect it, the more we will make time in our day for it, right? It's, it's easy to just say, oh, I can't get into the ocean because it's selfish almost, right? I, I can't, I've got to do my work. I can't take this time away to do. If you understand that it is actually helping the rest of your life, then it gives you potentially more motivation to take time for it. And then ultimately help save it. Yeah, it is selfish in the best possible way. All right. Well, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols, thank you for writing the book and for bringing this out into the world and for taking the time to talk to me here. Excellent. Thank you. It's loved our conversation. Let's go jump in the ocean somewhere. so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our new Atlantis Labs conversation on Discord. Or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on Good Pods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.